guys, if we'll make our way back to our seats. Love to see everybody connecting with one another over more than an obligatory, how's it going? Uh, we continue this morning through the book of 1 Peter, which really is a book written to a group of scattered followers of Jesus in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, and they need some help on what it looks like to be the sent people of God in the world as they face suffering. This morning, that's what we're going to talk about, is connect to how it, it's hard to have hope in suffering, and we'll revisit that theme as we go throughout this book. But as we say uh, each week, I want to remind one another that the way that we order and structure our gatherings is so that we can have practice for what it means to go out and scatter as the people of God. So again, we, we want to greet one another in the peace we have in Christ, and we want to pass that peace. That's why we'll call that portion of our gathering passing the peace. But now we want to go out and do that in our everyday lives. And so we, we talked about this earlier this year, and I think we still have some more of these on the table. If we don't, we can get them. But we provided everybody with this who is my neighbor magnet. And so many of us don't, we talk about love your neighbor and how what Jesus means as well. That doesn't just mean your literal neighbor. It means anybody that you pass or relate with. And so sometimes what we tend to do as Christians is we define something and then we like forget the obvious, like your literal neighbors, the literal people you live in a dorm room or in a suite with or on a hall with or on a street with. And so we want to encourage one another to actually get to know our literal neighbors too. And that may be harder for some of us than others, but this magnet is to help you to try to learn at least the names of the eight people who live the closest to you and to begin to pray for them and to begin to ask God to give you an opportunity to get to know them, to hear their story, and hopefully ultimately to build a relationship, whether they're a Christian or a non-Christian, where you can pass the peace of Christ to them in their lives. And so if you don't have one of these, and, and we don't have them, and maybe I've misplaced them or something, we can get you one. But I just wanted to remind you guys of that. We never want to just do stuff and then forget it and move on. But let's dive into 1 Peter and pray that the Spirit will make this truth not just words on a page, but a reality in our hearts. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We don't want to take your presence for granted. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the grace that is ours, not of our own doing, simply because you've chosen to love us. And we pray, God, that you would help us today to be open to hearing from you. We pray, God, what is said that is true according to your word will be what is implanted in our hearts and our lives, even in our bodies. We pray, God, that you would help us today to behold Jesus, to be with him now, to become more like him, to be reminded of his beauty and his glory and the good news of the kingdom that he brings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, one of my co-workers shared with me a story. I don't know if I'm even pronouncing this word right. A Taoist story or from the Zen tradition. She was like, well, I didn't expect to hear a story from that to start off with. But it's the story of an old farmer who worked his crops for many years. And one day, his horse ran away. And so hearing that his horse ran away, his neighbors came to him and they said, oh, man, that is some bad luck. And the farmer looked at them and said, maybe. Well, the next day, the horse came back, but it came back and brought three more horses with it. And so his neighbors looked and they said, wow, man, that is really good luck. And the farmer replied, maybe. Well, the next morning, his son tried to ride one of the untamed horses, was thrown from the horse and broke his leg. The neighbors again came to offer their sympathy for this misfortune. And the farmer said, maybe. Then, the day after, the military officials came to his village to draft this young man into the army and to take him into a very bloody war. But seeing that his leg was broken, they passed by. And the neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out. And the farmer said, maybe. We, we as people are so fast to assign things as to simply this is good or bad. When we do so, endurance is only the engagement of pain until the experience of escape. I want to say that again. When we have this view of our lives, this flat view of whether something is good or bad, then our suffering is only about us enduring until escape. And when I live my life like this, I find that my joy is totally connected to my circumstances. 
And what I find myself doing is just falling back into whatever sometimes idolatrous way that I can just bear through it and get it over with. I'm convicted as I think about what 1 Peter tells us here, what the Spirit tells us through the Word of Christ, of how often I waste my suffering. But we have to be careful when we hear a, a, a sort of parable, like we've said, as, as sort of uh, helpful as it may be. It's because what we're also tempted to do is to be sucked into these false religious views, one even from that sort of Zen tradition, that there is no such thing as evil. Or there is no such thing as good. And that finding peace in this world is just kind of entering this sort of state of detachment. Because this is also not the biblical way of Jesus. Evil and suffering in this world is not an illusion. Suffering in this world is not just simply defined by how we experience it. No, the Bible teaches us that evil is evil. I'm going to try to move here. I think I'm getting maybe feedback from this, and it may not be distracting y'all, but it's making me feel a lot of echo in my head. So there's this temptation, and none of you in here might think that you've ever sort of wanted to slip into Buddhism, but I would, I would assume that you have. I have either one way or another when we experience suffering and we think the way out is just to kind of detach, to, to become this sort of mature person who doesn't let the things of the world touch you, who in any place and in any moment can just kind of be in this spiritual chill. But as we look at Jesus and the way of Jesus, Jesus was not chill, <laughs> Jesus was angry. Jesus was sad. Jesus cried. Jesus emoted. Jesus called evil, evil, bad, bad, and suffering real. But the other temptation for us that pulls us away from the Christ is not to view suffering just as an illusion or as a reality that we can detach from and now just sort of float through, but also the other extreme that we can distort the way of Christ is to fall into this sort of fatalism. Maybe more of this Islamic view of God as just sort of this deterministic dictator. We diminish suffering in this way as well. We come up with this sort of que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be view of God's sovereignty. And so although we may feel it, we think, well... It just is what it is, so what's the point? And so we very rarely find ourselves with Jesus in the garden saying, Father, if there's another way, let it be, but nevertheless your will be done. Many of us make God's sovereignty in our suffering meaningless in either of these directions. We make God this impersonal, distant deity that we just kind of have to accept. Or we make him like he's only some sort of supreme chess player who's thankfully just a little smarter than Satan. A little more savvy than us. 
But God's word gives us a much more maybe nuanced, mysterious, and yet informed view of suffering. It teaches us who God is in the middle of it. What he's done in the middle of it. Who we are and what it means for us to go on. The gospel of the kingdom of Jesus is the story of a God who is not evil. Who does not tempt us with evil and yet who is supreme over evil. Who is sovereign. Who is victorious. And who works all things for the good of his people. So this leaves us with a hope that in the midst of our suffering, we don't simply just have to endure it for the sake of escape but that we can experience the triumph of salvation even in the middle of it. And how do we see this? We see this in verses 3 through 5, that we can experience the triumph of salvation even even as we endure the trials of suffering. As the gospel power becomes more real to us in it. trials and suffering is the opportunity to experience the triumph of salvation. The first thing we see is if we will engage our suffering as more than just getting through it, that the power of the gospel can become more real to us and in us. Notice first off here in verse 3 that Peter begins this section and really this whole book on suffering with a call to praise God because he views God personally. This is not some detached and personal deity. No, he says it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see these exiles that are being written to in the book of Peter. They don't have a temple to go to. They don't have a tabernacle to go to. They don't have a building to go to. They're probably not blessed to have a gathering to come to like we have. They're trying to figure this out. They're maybe in homes. They're maybe under threat of persecution. But they know a God who is personal and who is with them. And therefore, even in the darkest of moments and places where there's no structures to hold them, there's no sound systems to worry about, God is enough. When all is stripped away, God is still there. And they can praise Him in suffering because it's not just that God is with them it's that God has done a work in them notice it says according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again now we need to make this very clear in our culture a born-again Christian is not one kind of Christian have you ever heard this in the news oh they're a born-again Christian as if this is some type of of subculture within Christianity, or worse, some type of voting block. No, in the scriptures, the only way you are a Christian is if you have been born again. 
This is the definition of what it means to be in Christ. It means that God, by His mercy, has united you with Jesus Christ from death into life. And the good news we see here is that God is a God of mercy who causes this to happen in the hearts of people who are dead and willingly enslaved in sin. Who are living lives that are bound by the enemy and headed to the same destructive end that he is. This gives us hope in suffering. And this is meant in no way to belittle what we're going through in our lives and other people that we know are or people we don't know are. But the reality of the gospel is, as God has already delivered you from the worst suffering that could be imagined in this world. The scriptures tell us that apart from the mercy of God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Deserving only of judgment and wanting only the separation of God. It's what we wanted apart from his grace. We didn't want him. We were living our lives with a banner over us, condemned. And yet God spoke into our hearts, let there be light. God has already rescued us from the worst. This gives us hope. Peter is saying this gives these people whatever persecutions, whatever pain that they're facing. They can know this is how committed God is to their final rescue. He has already caused them to be born again. And to what? Well, the text tells us here to a living hope, not a dead hope, not a maybe hope, but a hope that is alive within them. A hope that isn't just wishful thinking for the future, but a hope that they can take with not only into a Sunday, but into an everyday. And this hope we see is as sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a hope that's to an inheritance. They've got something coming. That what's been born in them and what's being lived in them is going to one day finally be consummated in something that, that is given to them. That no one in this world could touch. They may could separate them from their families. They may could separate them from possessions. They may could take their comfort. They may could take their position. But this is an inheritance that is untouchable. We read in the Old Testament this language of inheritance is most often connected to the land promises. And if you've ever read through the Bible and you get to the book of Joshua and you're thinking, oh wow, this is great, like chapters 1 through 10 or 1 through 11, and then all of a sudden it's like the rest of the book is just, and so and so gets this land, and so and so gets this land, and so and so gets this land, and you're like, man, I really want to be able to check off I did my Bible reading. This is tough. And then you get to the end of the book of Joshua and it says, and all the promises that God made to Abraham were accomplished. Now you may not like to sit and listen to somebody else's will being read when you're not in it, but if someone has an inheritance to give you, 
all of a sudden, a will reading can be the most thrilling experience in the world. I've never experienced that. But this is what God is inviting us to know is ours today through the word. Is that Jesus, the heir of all the universe, has written our names down in his will. He has great things secured for us. Notice imperishable. This isn't like that stuff in the attic. You think, man, that's great. And then you go to touch it and it like falls apart. Undefiled. Unfading. Kept in heaven for you. And who is keeping this? God is keeping it. But it's not just he's keeping this eternal inheritance of the enjoyment of a, of a new earth and a new body and a new creation experience that we were created for. He's also keeping us for it. Notice who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This is so important when we think about salvation. And we use this language often that's been used much in the history of the church. It's not new to us. It's sometimes when we think of salvation, we only think of it in terms of past sense. But when you read through the scriptures, we receive that there's actually three tenses of our salvation. It's that we are told as God's people, we have been saved from the penalty of sin to be the, the beloved children of God. Now, in the middle of your suffering, when you realize that, it makes a difference. God has already saved me from the penalty of sin. No matter how bad it gets, I will never have to fear condemnation. But the Bible also tells us we have this living hope. There's just this hope in us that we are being saved. We are being saved from the power or the authority of sin. For the purpose of the filling and experiencing of the freedom of God's spirit for good works. God didn't just save you and leave you. He's at work in you now to will and to do his work. But also the Bible tells us we will be saved. A salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. One day we will be saved from the very presence of sin and suffering. For the purpose of enjoying God, His creation, and one another forever. When I was growing up, I used to kind of make fun of in church that we sang all these songs about heaven. As I got a little older and thought I was a little more maybe spiritually mature and theologically astute, I would get even a little more cynical. But now as I start to get a little older and this suffering begins to be a little more real and you start to think, oh, that wasn't just a season. That wasn't just a phase. Oh, there's some dreams that aren't ever going to come true. They can't come true. <laughs> I've already passed some certain lines. I start to see why people get so excited about the fact that there is a salvation to come. That there is a day when there will be no more crying. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. And yes, we can celebrate that in a way that doesn't include Jesus. 
But what we're told here in 1 Peter is Jesus will be at the center of all that. And that's what will make it so great. We need this hope to get us through life. Some of you know the pastor Tim Keller. And he tells a story about one of his friends. It was a friend who was named Archie. Who was a big Dallas Cowboys fan back in the day when Bart Starr was the quarterback. Some of you may know who that is. Some of you may not. It's not really important. But evidently this quarterback... He was known for like just kind of fumbling through the first part of the games and then amounting sort of an epic comeback at the end. And so they usually won, and I think Keller's a, a Steelers fan, so he'd say it except versus the Steelers. And some of you understand this way more than me. My wife would say, quit using sports illustrations. Nobody knows what you're talking about. But anyway, here we go. So Bart Starr would, would drive fans crazy. And Archie particularly was one who got to the point where he couldn't even watch the games. It was like, man, I know what you're going to do. You're just going to tear my heart apart and then bring, have this awesome comeback where I'm going to be sitting on pins and needles. And it literally disturbed him to such a way that he didn't want to watch the games anymore. Until one day, Archie, who happened to also be in the military, was deployed overseas. And this solved his problem. Now he was able to watch these games and actually, it still hurt, but actually bear through the hard times and enjoy the end. And you know why? It's because he was in a different place and the games were delayed for a day later to when they would be shown. So he would already know who won or who lost. And so now he could watch the game, and ever how painful the process was, he knew the end, and so therefore he could stay engaged. This is what God is wanting to give us through his word and through the victory of Christ. It's still hard. It's still painful. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of fumbles of the ball. There's a lot of sacks in the end zone. But in the end, we know Jesus has won and his victory is ours. This is what it means to understand the power of the gospel as a more relevant and true reality in the middle of our suffering. Is that there will not be an anticlimax. You are going to make it. This is what these doctrinal truths of the grace of God really mean and why they really matter. If you are in Christ this morning, you're going to survive. No matter how bad it gets, you're going to make it. This doesn't minimize our suffering in the moment, but it magnifies our Savior in our suffering. When all is stripped away, you might lose a precious relationship. You might lose a precious possession. Your dream may die, but God's dream for you is alive. When you know your willpower can't guarantee your future, you're reminded that from the very beginning it was God that caused you to be born again. When you feel like a zombie, when there are days that you can't get out of bed, 
the fact that Jesus got out of the grave for you is vital. When nothing is certain, your car could break down today, your health could break down today, your job could be lost today, we could lose it all. But we have an inheritance that is being kept by God for us that no enemy can take. When it seems that hope is a cruel hoax and you just get mad when people try to give it to you. The truth of the gospel tells you you have a living hope. And when we engage with the truth of the power of the gospel through the grace of God, then we can endure suffering not merely until we escape but we can endure suffering and experience the victory of Christ. And this is what it's all about, Jesus. And so this is what verses 6 through 9 tell us, that not only does enduring suffering make the gospel power more real to us and in us, but it makes the gospel person more real to us and in us. Peter here in these verses reminds us that Jesus is the power, is the person, is the prize in their suffering. They're not clinging to a set of doctrines to get them through a situation. They're clinging to Jesus. Grace has a name. In this they can rejoice. Because their suffering, they know, does not have the final word. It's temporary. It's refining. And it's leading to their sharing in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so verse 8 tells us, though you have not seen him, you love him. This is very personal. This is about a love of a person that you can't see. Do you ever get stuck thinking about that? I do. I think it's good. I want to get y'all stuck there if you're not already stuck there. Maybe that's part of my job is to mess with us all a little bit. We walk around saying we love Jesus. Does that not feel weird to you? Man, it feels weird to me sometimes. First off, you know, if you have weird manhood issues, talking around, talking around saying you love any other guy makes you feel nervous. Or even saying you love any other person that's not in your, like, biological family. Jacob comes up, gives me a hug, and tells me he loves me. It makes me feel nervous. Because a lot of us in here don't know how to love, don't know how to receive love. And then here we are walking around saying we love this person none of us have ever seen. I don't know, that feels weird to me. But it's everything. everything you believe in him though you don't see him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory and that's this love for Jesus out of his love for us this is the only thing that holds us so that we out so that we continue in this pathway obtaining the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls There's nothing immature about loving Jesus. 
I remember another, I don't know why my stories are all connected to how we sing songs, but it's part of my life. I remember when I was in college and I started thinking I was getting really smart. You know, I now know the Bible better than all these people who taught me the Bible growing up. And I remember sitting in, in our little Bible college chapel and they're singing some song, I don't know, about Jesus. And I'm thinking, golly bum, I could sing this. To, this could be written to a girlfriend. This, this, this doesn't have the gospel in it. Well, first off, when I found out it was just a psalm, oh. <laughs> so now I'm more, more spiritually and theologically astute than uh, the writers of Scripture and the Spirit of God himself and God himself. And now I think, well, even if it wasn't, well, what's so wrong with singing a love song of Jesus? Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. If we don't love him, we're not going to make it. Your doctrinal statement ain't going to hold you when the floor caves in unless it's connected to the person that it's all about. We've got to have those deep doctrinal truths of verses 3 through 5, but if they're not connected to the person of Christ whom we love, I've, I've lived long enough already to see this trajectory of brothers and sisters who are now have fallen completely away from the faith because they had this, this idol of certainty that wasn't connected to a person who was their assurance. And nine times out of ten, that just leads to quitting. Because if life already hadn't worked out for you, it's not going to. But Jesus is going to be there. The one who is grace. The one who is the one we're united to in our new birth. Love and faith are two sides of the same coin. Love isn't always happy feelings, but love hangs on to hope. When you feel like you're being tempted, tested, tried, messed with by God, you're going to have to be able to look to a Jesus whom you love hanging on a cross. Saying, I love you. I see you. I'm with you in your suffering. You're going to have to look to a Jesus risen from the dead who says, now I'm going to walk with you. I believe in you. I'm cheering you on. And you're going to have to look to a Jesus one day returning who says, can't wait. Can't wait to spend eternity with you when you will see him. He wants love with you. He wants to meet you personally in your grief. For us to meet him there, we're going to have to learn to bring ourselves to him personally. 
That may be scary for some of you. You may have a view of a God who just wants you to pass a test. Jesus wants you to come. We, we sang Psalm 42 this morning. I eat my tears for breakfast. Jesus loves you. You can come to him and cry. You can come to him in your frustrations, in your loneliness, in your shame, in your guilt, with your fear, with your anger. And he's not going to walk away. You're not too much for him. He loves you. And if all you got is Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so, and you cling to that, when the devil wants to take you into the mental gymnastics of all those great truths, verses 3 through 5, give us to hold us, but maybe sometimes you just got to cling to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, it's true. It's held the saints for years, for centuries. And this is why, lastly, briefly, enduring suffering not only makes the gospel power more real to us and in us, and the gospel person more real to us and in us, but this gospel story. Verses 10 through 12 tell us that the prophets were in speaking of the coming of Christ. And why were they doing this? This is amazing. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. You realize this? That there's this whole story of the suffering people of God looking forward to a king who would come and defeat sin and suffering and give us hope in this fallen and broken world. And we've been given the whole word of God to wield in this fight of faith to the finish. All of history is bent towards your blessing in Christ. This is amazing. We've experienced the salvation in Christ into which the angels long to look. We get so stuck in the temporary. But we're a part of a much bigger story. A much bigger experience even. Than being an angel. Inside of fire. As all, as all great theologians do. And finding their resources. Let me quote to you from Twitter. So the Atheist Forum this week. Uh, you might be thinking, why do you look at Atheist Forum tweets? Well, I, I think we can learn from everybody. So this is a tweet they did this week mocking Christianity. Christianity. Belief that one God created a universe... 13.79 billion years old, nine, 93 billion light years in diameter, and one light year equals approximately 6 trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, 
each containing an average of two billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. Mocking. And I love it. This guy I know responded. This is why we sing. <laughs> so however you want to date the world in the galaxy, y'all can go debate that later on. But isn't it amazing? That's true. We're not ashamed of that. It's amazing. He sees you. He loves you. In your suffering, he is with you. And one day, he's going to bring all this to this final great kingdom consummation where we will enjoy life with him forever. And that hope has now been put in us. It is our living hope. We're invited to step into that story. To remember these deep truths of verses 3 through 5. So that we can engage with the relevance of the power of the gospel. But even more. Connect with those deep truths of verses 6 through 9. Of the person who is our hope. But also to connect our stories a little more deeply. With the gospel story. That does not end with us abandoned. That does not end with us alone. Confused, cast down, but eternally risen and reigning with Christ. Father, we thank you for the good news, the gospel. And as we come now to the table, we pray that you would help us to taste and see our hope. Lord Jesus, you told us to take of the bread and cup, proclaiming your death until you return. So we ask you now, Spirit, to help us not only look back into the present, to the future. We come before the bread as a picture of Jesus, your body given for us, and the cup, your blood shed for us. As we mysteriously, even mystically, participate with you now, as your presence walks amongst us. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.